Welcome to the 48th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Thomas Perry, author of The Informant and many other thriller and suspense novels. Well, this is uh, Jeffrey Deaver, author of, uh, most recently, The Burning Wire, and uh, soon to be author of the next continuation James Bond novel. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time researching my books, um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, I I love uh, listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast, which you can hear at readingandwritingpodcast.com. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, my guest is Thomas Perry, author of many suspense and thriller novels, including the Jane Whitefield series. Perry's first novel, The Butcher's Boy, won an Edgar Allan Poe Award in 1983 for Best First Novel. Perry's latest novel, The Informant, is in bookstores now. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, great. Well, in your latest novel, The Informant, The Butcher Boy Returns, this is the third novel that you've written about him. For Thomas Perry readers, all I have to say is The Butcher Boy is back. And However, for listeners who may not have read one of your novels before, can you let them know what to expect with your your new novel, The Informant? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a kind of an odd uh, third book in a series. Um, the Butcher's Boy, the original book, was, which was written, you know, between 19, I guess, well, 1980, uh, he and I were about 30 years old. <laughs> and the Butcher's Boy was a professional hitman who worked primarily for uh, uh, organized crime figures, who are the people that you know want somebody killed and who pay well for it. And um, at a certain point early in the book, what he realizes is that his current employer, whom he hasn't dealt with directly, uh, has decided that instead of paying him off for uh, the murders that he has committed uh, of late, uh, decides to have him ambushed in Las Vegas and killed so he doesn't have to pay him. And what he does, what the butcher's boy does in return, is to uh, decide to cause so much chaos among major figures of the mafia that none of them really knows whether they're being attacked or whether there's simply a maniac on the loose or what's actually going on and neither do the police or the FBI or the Justice Department. And uh, meanwhile, there is a young woman named Elizabeth Waring who is 22 years old and has just gotten out of college and begun her first job at the Justice Department working in the basement reading uh, <coughs> computer printouts of suspicious deaths. And she realizes uh, fairly early on that she's dealing with a phenomenon that is very different from what her uh, superiors think is going on and she kind of uh, spends the rest of the book being you know the, the kind of voice in the wilderness that is trying to tell these people this is just one guy who is out here you know committing all of these murders and there isn't a war going on between factions of the mafia and uh, anyway it, he, he manages to uh, the butcher's boy manages to succeed enough uh, by creating enough chaos, he manages to go off to England and live in the city of Bath. And we don't hear from him again for 10 years. In 1990, I realized that uh, the butcher's boy and I were 
no longer about 30, we were about 40. And uh, I had changed quite a bit during that period of time, and so I decided I was curious about what, uh, how the Vultures Boy would have changed. So I wrote a book called Sleeping Dogs, in which uh, he's living happily with uh, his new girlfriend uh, in England, and a young guy who is uh, the son of a minor mafia figure in New York City is is uh, working in England and manages to recognize him. And uh, after some some action, so on, uh, the butcher's boy comes to New York City to see if he can kill the people who might have heard that he was living in Bath, England. And uh, you know, essentially, we have another rather violent uh, set of episodes in in that book. And uh, he managed to to survive a second time. Right. Uh, you know, I realized that when I was about thirty, I was, I was happy to write scenes like the one in the Butcher's Boy, where uh, he decides to uh, take the shelf out of a closet in a hotel room and lay the shelf between the two balconies outside the uh, hotel window and crawl, you know, ten stories up, crawl to the next <laughs> balcony. And I thought, well, <laughs> at age forty, I was I was smart enough not to want to do that. <laughs> And I figured he would be too. So, <laughs> but at that point, I thought I was sort of done with the the butcher's boy. I had done the uh, the first one. I had done you know the second one ten years later as a follow up, and so I let it go. And then about a year ago or so, I changed agents here in in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And one of the people at the agency said, you know, times have changed an awful lot since you wrote the first of these books. And, uh, you know, we're really gotten, we've gotten to the point where you could, at least theoretically, do a television show based on the butcher's point. And, uh, you know, if you did it late night, uh, I'm probably on cable, uh, <laughs> you could probably actually do it and it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, we have two, two books here, which uh, could probably give us, I don't know, maybe a year to two years of episodes. But uh, any conceivable purchaser would want to uh, have a, a better idea of what goes on later, and particularly to bring it up to the present. And so I sat down and I wrote about a five-page kind of description of what would be happening if these people were alive right now. Uh, and so uh, what has, has happened was actually 20 years had gone by this time, <clears throat> but I, I shortened it to 10. At this point, Elizabeth Waring is no longer a 22-year-old ingenue in the basement of the Justice Department building. She's the highest-ranking civil servant in the Organized Crime Task Force, or or the the permanent department now, in the Justice Department, and she has an office with a corner window. And uh, she and the butcher's boy are about 50. And... uh, what what happens in the informant is is that essentially each of them realizes that he needs the other. <clears throat> the butcher's boy has come back from England after all this time. He has no idea who is uh, the the current, or uh, let's say, who are the the uh, current people at the top of the structure of the mafia, whom he wants to get to, and Elizabeth Waring realizes that she's talking to a man who 
never did anything in his life that wasn't a capital crime. And he was hired to do it by the various people who are now at the at the level of the organized crime where they don't actually do anything themselves. So their only chance of ever getting these people is to talk to somebody like him who, you know, <laughs> was implicated and witnessed their uh, hiring him to kill various people. So each of them is, in a sense, the informant, and each of them wants to, uh, let's say, uh, get by, find out what they want to know, but not tell the other person enough to to uh, do themselves harm. So it's kind of an interesting and fun kind of standoff between uh, her interests and his interests. Mm-hmm. And, right. Uh, yeah. So well, that, that was the, the long, short version. <laughs> um, uh, so you, 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 you were describing the, the informant, and obviously... Um, if someone is familiar with kind of pop culture, since you wrote the uh, the last um, book uh, featuring the Butcher's Boy, obviously you know they're they're familiar with the Sopranos. And you know while your while your books certainly have nothing to do with the Sopranos, I wonder, given the intervening time when you came back to write the Informant, if you were if you were concerned at all that that. Um, you know, with the the Sopranos kind of on the landscape, if if you know to to revisit the the mafia, if if there was any thoughts in your mind in the the writing process. Well, um, you know, there's a, there's a question in my mind when I decide to do something whether I'm going to want to spend a year doing it, uh, whether that story is worth it. Um, in this particular case, I as I uh, begin to think about it, I. Part of the fun of it really is that the the role of the mafia has changed pretty significantly in this country since uh, you know the 1970s or so when that was when the first one was uh, was set and uh, you know part of the plot really becomes the fact that that the mafia isn't what it used to be sure and that there are a lot of people who wanted to sort of um, I don't know, revitalize it and and uh, make it as, as you know good as they as it probably never was, <laughs> and and uh, and as efficient and as, as scary, uh, and in a sense what he what Elizabeth Waring and the Butcher's Boy are both doing is is preventing that from happening, and so that's part of the fun of it. I don't really feel as though the mafia has been burned in the sense that it's you can never you know use that as a villain again or something. Um, you know, it's, it's, The Sopranos was, was a, really a, a terrific TV series. Um, you know, in a sense, books and TV series live in different universes. And uh, so I don't, don't really think about it, uh, you know, as a problem. I, what I do sometimes think about is, is uh, what reality, you know, gives us. That is, uh, you know, there are... Um, uh, you know, news stories and, and uh, uh, people who keep track of these things who are, um, you know, extremely useful to a writer. And I, you know, I started doing research online and I realized that I was getting the explanations of things that I remember ha- happening, uh, but uh, that I didn't understand properly at the time. You know, <laughs> I remember, you know, one thing that was. Uh, Actually, I would write this, I think, as comedy. It was uh, when I was in uh, graduate school at the University of Rochester in New York. 
I uh, <laughs> I can recall the the local mafia family was having you know various kinds of troubles and um, was, I don't know I guess internal arguments or something and there was this one guy who kept being blown up. <laughs> that is, you know they would <laughs> they would set explosives you know and his car would blow up or something and he would. He would miraculously survive, and there was one time when they set up a bomb, I guess, right outside his house, and he, they blew him up into the air into a snowbank, and he completely survived. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this guy, you know, talking about the Teflon down, you know, this guy was, uh, you know, being blown all over the place without, uh, you know, ever getting hurt, apparently. But uh, anyway, these, these things are kind of fun, and... And, uh, you know, I think, you know, yes, there still is organized crime. And, sure. you know, but I imagine at this point they're probably uh, on the outside of an awful lot of uh, criminal activities looking in, you know. Sure, sure. Well, what What is your research process like? Uh, there's a very brief scene in The Informant where you mention a character killing someone in a specific way that's referred to as running the gears. And when I read that, I, I couldn't help but be curious what type of research you do for your novels. Well, yeah, that, that one is actually, that little fact is actually kind of a, a bizarre uh, set of occurrences. There was a time years ago when a guy wrote to me from a federal prison that he wasn't, he and his buddies weren't able to get... Uh, books that you know in, in let's say the the numbers that they read them in you know they had plenty right. of uh, time alone and silence to uh, to read books and his he was a very uh, I don't know an interesting sort of guy and I I uh, wrote back and and sent him a, a copy or actually a couple of copies I guess of books of mine and the uh, in return what he did was to uh, buy me a subscription to a prison magazine, which was called, I think, Prison Life, mm -hmm. something like that. And it was full of short stories that were written, uh, and articles, you know, nonfiction articles, that were written by prisoners in the, in the prison system. And I started reading this thing, and, uh, you know, I picked up an awful lot of little facts and terms and things that, were, that have come in handy later. So you know, it was uh, it was interesting. I haven't uh, <laughs> haven't seen it in years, but it was uh, it was quite a, quite a magazine. <laughs> oh, that, that's interesting. Well, well, you mentioned earlier when you were in graduate school, and I know that from reading your uh, your bio that you have a PhD in English literature. When when you were when you were studying for your PhD, were you at the time, or did you know that you were that you wanted to write the kind of commercial suspense thriller novels that you ended up writing, or or is that something that you came to later? What was that process like for you? Well. It was, um, <laughs> you know, I always wanted to be a writer. I, I never really wanted to be anything else but a writer. Or Actually, the, the truth of the matter is I wanted to be everything else, too, <laughs> and write about it. <laughs> you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be, <laughs> you know, you, sometimes you meet an actor who actually will tell you the truth, and, they'll, you know, they, the fact is, you know, they want to be the villain, they want to be the victim, they want to be the, you know, <laughs> the comedian and the... the uh, uh, I don't know the person who uh, falls down on his face. We want to be everything, and in a way, that's what writers are too. You know, you want to be uh, everything, and then you want to write about it. 
um, when I went to graduate school, one of the first things that I can recall happening was that the chairman of the department, who was about, I don't know, a foot or so taller than I am, and had a, a sort of wonderful bass voice and silver hair, was gave us a little lecture that said, if you are coming to graduate school with the idea that you're going to uh, learn all you can and then be a writer, then you should pack your trunk right now. <laughs> uh, because this isn't really a good thing to, to do. It isn't the way that, you know, one uh, does that. And, uh, uh, you know, what we do here is to train uh, <laughs> train people who are going to be professors of literature. And, you know, what I was thinking about, it sounded like some sort of the... Uh, the opening speech of a, a training class for uh, high priests or something. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, you can say I was sort of a stealth graduate student. I, I uh, studied very hard and worked very hard and read, you know, everything I could get my hands on. But I never really intended to uh, give up writing. I thought that you know it would be nice to have something honest to do for a living that would actually support me. And you know, then do the writing, you know, essentially in my spare time. But uh, you know, in a way that I don't know why that didn't bother me, but it it really didn't. I, I just felt that so, uh, so the you, way to learn to write is to read. So, so you didn't you didn't pack your trunk? No, I didn't pack my trunk. I still have the <laughs> trunk. Actually, now I keep earthquake gear in a you know just in case. <laughs> and and so so what what were you what were you writing at the time were were you you said that you always wanted to be a writer um were, did you start out like um like a lot of writers writing short stories um and you know was the butcher boy your your first novel or were there you know for the lack of a better word trunk novels that you that you worked on well um I started writing, you know, t taking the, the work seriously without taking myself seriously at uh, about age 13 or so. I was, uh, I wrote a short story for an English class and liked it and enjoyed the process. And I found out that, uh, you know, it was something that I really liked to do. I mean, I always thought uh, that uh, I wanted to be some sort of a, I don't know, professor or, or an archaeologist or something. And, um, you know, I realized that at some point or other, everybody who, who does any kind of research or invention or anything ends up being a writer. They have to write about whatever it is that they do. And so I assumed, okay, no matter what I do, learning to be a writer will be a great idea. But I, you know, I sort of got caught in the actual process of writing. I loved it so much that I just sort of kept doing it. And uh, it was just, <laughs> and I'd say, I, I, like most people, I started out writing short stories. And uh, when I went off to Cornell as, a, as an undergraduate student, I happened to be very lucky and got, as a professor in my freshman English class, a, uh, a man named Walter Sladoff. And Walter Sladoff looked a little bit like Groucho Marx. And he was sort of a chain smoker. You know, you could do that in class in those days. That was before we evolved to, <laughs> to know you weren't supposed to do that. <clears throat> but <laughs> he had been the, uh, the professor who, who uh, taught um, creative writing there at Cornell when um, 
uh, Thomas Pynchon was an undergraduate. Oh wow! And and he was he was a poet himself, actually. But you know, between I think between him and Vladimir Nabokov, uh, that was Cornell's creative writing program. You know, <laughs> and uh, anyway, he was he was a terrific kind of professor. And at a certain point, he assigned us, uh, you know, to write a poem or two. And then you know he wrote he he assigned us to write a short story or two and uh, you know he he, he uh, actually ended up being my advisor but he, he sort of uh, actually gave advice and he he sat me down in his office one day and uh, you know I've I've seen your your poems uh, published in some of the you know Cornell literary magazines and. Uh, uh, I've got to tell you, I think, don't do that anymore. You're you're not a poet. <laughs> you're just no good. <laughs> so you can keep writing short stories. Those are good. <laughs> but don't do any more poetry. <laughs> so uh, I took his advice. <laughs> and, uh, you know... <laughs> But uh, the short stories just get tend to get longer and longer as you as you write, you know, if you really love to write. And so I wrote, you know, under, an undergraduate novel, you know, which was pretty awful. And uh, then, you know, over the years, I wrote other things as I was uh, going through graduate school and going, you know, after that, I got a job at uh, the University of uh, California at Santa Barbara. For a while, and uh, you know, I was writing there. So you know, it was it's uh, it continued to be fun. So I continued to do it. That's great. So, well, so the butcher's well, boy was like maybe my. Full Say that again. No, it just Say happened. I said the butcher's boy was maybe like the third or fourth book-length manuscript that I produced, but it was the first one that I actually, you know, when I read it over, I thought to myself that somebody who wasn't actually related to me would probably be, uh, uh, let's say they would be more interested in reading, you know. Gotcha. There really wasn't anything before that that was anything but amusement for myself. Right. Well, in addition to writing novels, you, you worked in Hollywood as a television writer and producer. How, how did that experience impact your own fiction writing? How did, well, it's, uh, that was kind of an odd situation. I was working at the University of Southern California in, in Los Angeles at that time. Um, what you know happened was uh, my second book, Metzger's Dog, came out, and I got a call from a man named Jim Corris, who was a vice president at Universal Studios. And uh, he said, you know, he introduced me, he introduced himself to me over the phone and said, um, how would you like to write, you know, television? I can see that you do dialogue pretty well, and so on. Uh, and I happen to read one of your books. And if you, uh, you know, were to, to try this, it, you know, you could uh, possibly do pretty well. And I said, you know, gee, thanks a lot for calling, but you know, I'm really busy right now. I have a couple people in my office, and. Uh, you know, I, re I really, I've never seen a script. I don't know anything about it. And, and uh, so you've got the wrong guy. And he said, well, you know, talk it over and think it over. Uh, and I'll give you a call tomorrow. So what I did was I uh, walked down the hall to my wife's office and uh, did my substitute for thinking, which is to tell her about it and say, what do you think? And 
she said, well, you know, why don't you give it a try and see if you, if you like it. And if you get into trouble with it, I'll help you out. And, uh, you know, this was not an empty offer because uh, her father had been a television, well, a television writer and radio writer and everything. Uh, he had worked for Bob Hope for about 38 years. And so she had at least seen a script and been to a taping. Right. I had no idea what any you know any of that stuff was, and uh, so I I went to uh, Jim Chorus's office and he introduced me to the people on a show that was going at that time called Simon and Simon, and he said uh, or you know what they did was they gave me an assignment for a script, which I began to write and I did get into trouble with it and I did ask for her help. And so for the next 11 years or so, she and I worked as writing partners in television. And, you know, it was a fun time. I liked it. I really enjoyed it. It's not very much like writing novels. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's it, the, you know, people, uh, the cliche is it's a collaborative medium. Well, you know, the cliche in this case is absolutely true. And... Uh, you know, you spend an awful lot of time with your colleagues sitting in rooms and kind of, uh, you know, what's called breaking stories. That if somebody, uh, you know, has a, a pitch for a story that they want to write, and then everybody else kind of pitches in to, to help, you know, work out the, the actual beats of the story. And when you've gone through that process, you get sent away to, to write your, your actual script. And, uh, you know, when you're done with it, uh, you go through the same process again. You know, everybody has an awful lot of suggestions, and, and uh, then the, it, the uh, script goes to the network, and then it goes to the, I'm sorry, not the network, but the studio first, right. and then the mm -hmm. network. And everybody, you know, everybody gets uh, a few things to say about it, and then it goes through a read-through, and the actors get a chance to say something about it, and the director... And so by the time you're done, you know, you often have the product of an awful lot of different minds. And of course, you know, not everything that's gone in there is something that you necessarily think is the very best thing in the world. <clears throat> but what happens is you then, you know, go to dailies and they, uh, you know, everybody watches what's been filmed. And, you know, if, uh, if somebody in comes up to you and says, gee, that's really a great script, you know, do you say, uh, gee, it would have been a better script if all these uh, guys had left me alone. <laughs> no, what you say is thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you take credit for everybody's work. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, it actually was a fun time for me. It was really a pleasure. But you know, at a certain point, you uh, you know, your life turns in a different direction. And uh, in this case, what happened was that um, our first daughter was born just about a week after we had a, a show canceled out from under us and uh, which was not unexpected by the way it's never unexpected <laughs> it's like watching a ship sinking and uh, <laughs> but uh, you know at that point my wife said you know I want to be you know full-time mom and stay at home and all that and, and uh, you know so the idea of going to to uh, write television a bit more was, was uh, kind of out of the question. I didn't feel like doing it. Although we did some, you know, quite a bit of freelance work after that. Uh, we didn't 
you know, go back to staff work or producing or anything like that. I just went into, well, actually another thing happened at the same time, which was the first of the Jane Whitefield books. I, I finished uh, Vanishing Act, which is the first of, of that series. And then I started working on the second book in that series. And my then editor at Random House called me up, as editors do sometimes, which is, uh, you know, they call you up and they say, uh, um, working on anything? You know, of course you're working on something. It's been yeah. months, you know. Uh, and you, you know, I, I said what I was doing, and he said, well, let me call you back. And he called me back a short time later, and he said, how would you like to make it five of those books? And... So I, you know, I said, yeah, okay, I'll write five of them. But the kicker was that in order to have a series of, of five Jane Whitefield books, I had to have um, a, a finished, publishable manuscript on his desk on June fifteenth every year for those five years. And uh, you know, I, it ended up uh, being a congenial way to work for me, and I. Uh, so they extended it for two more books, uh, and you know I kept writing for <clears throat> a, a novel, writing novels rather than television. Right. And once you've been out like seven years or so, uh, you know the, the people who are there running the show are pretty much pretty much never heard of you. you right. know? Well, I was actually going to ask you. I was going to ask you about your Jane Whitefield novels. Uh, it's a very popular series and a very popular character. Whitefield is a Native American woman skilled at making people disappear. Um, I, I know from your uh, from your background that you were born in Tonawanda, New York, which is a suburb of Buffalo, and, and where you set the books. Uh, is that is that why you decided to set it there because you knew the area? Um, I mean, usually Buffalo is not the the setting for most suspense thrillers. Well, that, yeah, that's actually it's sort of a combination of things. Um, what uh, what happened with with me is that I was working on something else. It was going to be the greatest Los Angeles earthquake story. So I started working on it, and I worked on it for a while, and uh, kept working. I did incredible research about it. I you know I got the state's contingency plans so that I knew you know which. Uh, natural gas pipelines were going to blow up when and what uh, overpasses were going to fall down on my head and all that stuff if there was a big earthquake. And I started writing this, this story and there were people all over the, the whole Los Angeles area. I had about, I think it was eight major sub-stories going on at the same time. It was about all the, how these people were all changed by this major earthquake. And then at a certain point, I realized it was getting a little thick. And uh, I had 865 pages of manuscript, but I had no end in sight. <laughs> and so I thought, geez, you know, maybe I better have somebody else take a look at this. And I gave it to my wife, who is, you know, the, the best critic, because she had worked with me all those years, and we tell each other the truth. You know, you learn to do that. <clears throat> you know, you don't soften anything. And she found it so boring that she couldn't even finish it. It was wow. awful, and so I realized, you know, that uh, while that was interesting ex writing exercise, uh, that book was never going to get finished. So I put it away, and I was thinking about uh, 
essentially what I wanted to write next, and I, I realized that part of the problem with the writing about all of the whole Los Angeles uh, area is is just too big a, a thing to to bite off and chew. You just can't do it. It's too big. It's too complicated. And you know, it's trying to fill everybody in is is astoundingly dull. So uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to write about the part of the country where I was born, which I know, you know, <laughs> pretty well. And sure. Uh, so I, I uh, decided to, you know, that that would be the place to start, and I, I began to think about different ways of doing things. I also thought at that time that I had never written a book in which a, a female was the protagonist. You know, I thought I, I, uh, I had probably better uh, either, you know, discover that I could do that or learn to do it, and. Um, you know, it was sort of about that time in my career, because you don't want to be a professional writer who can't write about 53% of the adult population. Uh, so I decided it was going to my my hero was going to be female. Uh, the area that I wanted to write about would be Western New York, and I would somehow have that person, uh, I don't know, kind of convey thoughts that I had about that area. At the same time. Uh, I, you know, kind of began to do research. I said, first I thought, okay, what I'll do is write about my own, essentially my own family, what I know about my own family living in that part of the country. But, you know, that takes you back, you know, a couple of generations at best. So I was, I was reading the history of that area, and I realized that the, the people who were the, uh, I will say, the, the most interesting things that have happened in that part of the world happened before Europeans showed up. You know, it was the uh, right along the area right along the Niagara River is is a, has always been an incredibly strategic place. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, right across the the Niagara River from where I grew up, there's a part of Grand Island, which is an island about nine miles long and maybe three miles wide or five miles wide. And uh, right on that point is a there was a deposit of of uh, flint, which is very rare in that part of the of the state. Mm-hmm. The, you know the uh, and and there were people you know napping tools there, uh, essentially as the the ice age was eating. You know, and it's been there. You know, people have been have known about that spot forever. And you know, the Niagara River. If you look at a map of the United States, and you know, trace from the Western point end of, of Lake Superior, uh, and watch. You know, imagine that that bit of that drop of water is going to end up in the Atlantic Ocean. If you follow with your finger, you know where that that drop of water has to go. It uh, inevitably goes through Lake Erie to Lake Ontario, and those, and that's what the Niagara River is. It's the little narrow spot where. Uh, the water goes from from Erie to Ontario, and, and after that into uh, the St. Lawrence River, and then into the ocean. And the Seneca word for the for that place was Niaga, meaning the neck. <laughs> you know, it's a choke point. It's a place right. where you know, if you want to go from the west to the to the extreme east, you know, you have to pass through there. And there's a you know, the most vulnerable spot of course is the place where you have to pick your canoe up out of the water and walk around the the Niagara Falls and put your 
canoe back in the water. Um, you know, it was called the carrying place of Niagara or Niagara originally. But uh, you know, I started reading about all this stuff and about the you know the wars that that went on among the, the Iroquois and their neighbors, and, and uh, you know, I really got kind of hooked. Partly because I grew up in that area and I you know had studied history and so on, and I realized that not only did I not know as much as I thought I did. But everything I knew was pretty much wrong, so, <laughs> so I, you know, began to study, <laughs> and I realized, okay, that Jane was going to be uh, a Seneca Indian, and she was going to, you know, live somewhere in that part of the country, and uh, you know, the, her profession came about through another series of, of sort of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> kind of long-term thinking. You know, I realized that if somebody was was uh, uh, going to make a living um, uh, making phony uh, twenty dollar bills, they could also make a living making phony driver's licenses, and they're not really much harder to make, or they weren't in those days, and you could get a heck of a lot more money for it. Right. But uh, I decided that Jane would be somebody who was benevolent rather than a criminal. You know, her her attitudes about things really have more to do with her ethnicity and the history of her people than it has to do with any kind of criminal intent. She never never has a criminal intent. So, you know, she wants to help people. She anybody that someone that she meets uh, who has a serious reason to believe that he's likely to be murdered or is about to be murdered is a potential client of Jane's. Jane takes them to other parts of the country and gives them new names and new identities and teaches them how to live as new people, which is a, you know, a situation that I've always thought had interesting dramatic possibilities. You know, the idea of being in trouble and then suddenly having to face the choice of who am I going to be, what am I going to, <laughs> essentially, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I have, I have. Uh, you know, a reason to stay hidden, but at the same time, it's kind of an opportunity. You know, right. if I were to start over, who would I be? And and so that's you know part of the fun of the Jane books. Gotcha. Do you do you plan to write any more of the Whitefield novels? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Do you plan to write any more Jane Whitefield novels? Ah, funny you should ask. <laughs> I have written the next one. The next one is is uh, probably going to come out next spring. And it's uh, the seventh Jane Whitefield book, and I'm calling it Poison Flower. Um, the reference there is that Jane has always promised all of her uh, clients that if she were ever captured by their by the their clients' enemies, she would die rather than than give them up. And so she feels that. If she doesn't carry with her at all times the means of of uh, dying, that she would be lying. Her promises would be lies. So what Jane does is is makes a kind of mash uh, of uh, the roots of a water hemlock plant, and uh, then distills the juice so it's a little more potent, or actually a lot more potent. And she carries it in a cut glass. Uh, perfume bottle in her purse so that if, if uh, the time ever comes Jane will you know 
gulp that down and, and finish yourself off, which is actually a variation on the traditional Seneca method of suicide, which was to take two bites of a water hemlock root and you would be dead within 10 minutes or so. Wow. Uh, it's uh, the most poisonous plant on the, in the Western Hemisphere. It's, uh, you know, in, or actually I shouldn't say the Western Hemisphere, in, the, uh, in North America. Right. I keep right. forgetting about South America. But <laughs> um, it's, you know, the, the, the sort of common name for it uh, is cowbane. Because if a cow that's uh, out foraging uh, in a pasture comes across one of those and eats a root, you know, your thousand-pound cow is going to fall over dead. Wow. And uh, you know, it's quite a, a quite a potent poison. So anyway, so we have that. Uh, we have that to look forward to. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I like it a lot. I think you know, probably people who have read any of the Jane books would like it too. Because what That's I do great. with Jane in that one is, is actually put her in her worst situation ever, <laughs> which is the kind of the, the lowest point that any of her clients ever gets into. She uh, is in a city 3,000 miles away from home. She is, uh, has no money, no identification of any kind. She's completely alone. She's being hunted, and she's got a bullet wound. So I tried to... Wow. <laughs> part of the book is her digging her way out of that. <laughs> yeah, you're not making it easy. <laughs> no, no. It's, just, it's as hard as I could possibly make it, you know. So. Well, well when, you, when you speak with um, writers, and I know that you, you know, mentioned earlier before you got into writing for TV that you were a, a professor um, uh, yourself... Or, or a teacher, um, when you speak to writers and aspiring writers, what kind of advice do you give them if they are, you know, seeking publication? Well, you know, it varies. It varies on, uh, uh, let's say, uh, on the uh, level of thinking that they have reached. Um, you know, a person who loves to write and is has always written for fun. Um, and who is, you know, fairly serious about it, all you have to do is, is encourage them and kind of uh, sometimes tell them how, uh, well, let's say it's a, it's a very good idea to get an agent, for instance. You know, I would tell them to do that. Right. But uh, I'll tell you another, you know, sort of the other extreme is uh, when I worked at USC, the, somebody sent a student to me who, you know, wanted to talk about how he could get a novel published. And uh, I, uh, you know, I kind of asked him a couple of questions. You know, is what is the novel about? What's the, you know, character? What are you, what are you doing? And uh, what he said was, well, you know, I haven't written it yet. And I said, well, you know, maybe that's, you know, that's the first step. You write a, you write a, a novel, and then if you're pleased with it, and and when you have done all the work to make it as good as you possibly can, then you try and get in touch with agents. And then you, you know, your agent will try and sell it to an editor at a publishing house, and then the editor, you know, I, I told him the whole process, and he started to realize that, uh, you know, his eyes were were beginning to get a little troubled, and he said, you know, I can't wait to do all that, and I said, well, why not? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I have this girl that I really want to impress, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
So he had taken a pretty, pretty uh, time-consuming way of impressing this girl. So I realized that that was kind of hopeless. I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I had to advise him to go write something. <laughs> so, you know. Well, great. I, you know, I, I, I try really to answer questions. The, 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 uh, the person who, who wants to know these things will ask you well, uh, whatever it is that's on their mind, and eventually you can kind of figure out what, what they need to know. Right, right. So. Well, again, we've been speaking with Thomas Perry, author of many suspense and thriller novels. Perry's latest novel, The Informant, is in bookstores now and features the return of the butcher's boy, a very efficient mob hitman. And as Thomas just mentioned, he's um, already uh, recently finished a new novel in the Jane Whitefield series, which will be out next year. Thomas, thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Well, thank you. Thanks for doing it. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.